Good morning. How's everyone? Good, good. My name is Eric, if you don't know me. Um, if you're new, we want to say welcome. We're so glad you're here. Uh, out in the courtyard, we have literature for you. We have ways for you to connect to LBC. We'd love to give you a gift and just uh, help you become a part of our church family in any way we can. Um, just side note, so one thing important for everyone to know is, you know, on Sunday morning, we're very laser-focused, very locked into singing to Jesus, praising him, and then hearing from his word, um, hearing all that he would have for us. And so sometimes things come up and, and people are like, oh, I wish you would talk more about that because that has political ramifications. Oh, that's, that's marriage, that's parenting, that's finances. Why don't we talk about that, talk about that? Um, and the text just won't lend itself to that. So what we have is other platforms for us to dig deeper into certain truths that we want to know more about. Um, sometimes that's in a Bible study. That's a great place. But another way is uh, through our podcast. We'll try to tackle some deeper issues or secondary issues. And um, what's kind of come up through Pastor Dave preaching his first sermon on blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And then through this sermon is, you know, how do I know I'm saved? And uh, can you lose your salvation? Just some different questions. So we're going to record that on the 14th and then post it. And that'll be an opportunity for you to maybe dig deeper into some of the questions you have. And I'm going to touch on it in this sermon. Um, but again, I can only go as far as we can go in the text. And we only have so much time, unless you guys want to be here till five, and that should get halfway through it. Okay, so there you go. There's another platform for you to listen to that I encourage you uh, to do. So here we are. We're in Matthew chapter 13. You know, last week we talked about uh, just that how does Jesus treat Scripture and how does he treat people? And for some reason, people really struggle with Jesus and the great fish, or you want, or, sorry, Jonah and the great fish, or Jonah and the whale. And what we want to see is that Jesus, we talked about this, treated as a real person, a real event, and he applied it literally to, to a group of people. And you're like, well, pastor, here we go. It's, he's talking in metaphors now. How do we know that Jonah wasn't doing that as well? Let's go right into our text. What happens in verse three? He says, and he told them many things in parables. He announces the genre that is about to happen. He didn't say Jonah was a parable. He says Jonah was a real person. Now he says, I'm going to speak to you in a parable. Okay, so a parable is not um, an allegory, meaning there's not uh, every single piece of the story has meaning. A parable is not a fable. It's not a a totally made-up scenario with made-up things and made-up pieces. A parable is a real-life example that has spiritual meaning and moral meaning to help people understand. And so the Bible will tell us, hey, this is a parable. I'm going to tell you a story, and the story is going to help you understand spiritual things and moral things. Okay, So that's important for us to understand that distinction. And so as Jesus is telling us the parable... He also is introducing to uh, the disciples, hey, this is going to work in a, in a little bit of a different way than what you're thinking. There's going to be some people who don't understand this. There's going to be some people who do. And this is going to be reminiscent of what the prophet Isaiah said. And so what he's telling them is simply this. Whenever God is speaking, there are going to be those who understand and there are going to be those who don't understand. So you could find yourself opening up your Bible and you're talking about Scripture with someone. They're like, that makes absolutely no sense. And you're like, this is life-changing. And they're like, it makes no sense. Okay? I don't know if you've ever been through that, but Jesus is literally telling them, hey, it's going to happen. So then the disciples said, look at verse 10. He says, then the disciples came to him. Why do you speak to them in parables? 
And he said to them, to you has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. This is a simple truth. Those that are his, they'll understand. Those that are not, they won't. And it's not saying they don't understand the concept of seeds and soils and planting. It's the secrets of the kingdom. It's the spiritual truth of what does it mean to have roots that grow deep and that are connected to the vine that is Christ and producing fruit out of that connectedness, out of that rootedness. And so he says, this is reminiscent of, Now I want you to catch this. If you're a nerd, highlight this, underline this. If you're not, you, you won't care, but you still should. I want you to look at verse 14. He says, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah. How does Jesus treat Isaiah? Literal prophet, literal person, literally scripture. Okay? There are academics who would say, Isaiah is written by six different authors, and it's not a part of the Bible, and we don't even know if he was a real person. How does Jesus treat it? Real person, real scripture, really prophesied. And what does Jesus say? He's reminding them of the prophet Isaiah, that Isaiah was called in Isaiah chapter six to preach God's word to a group of people. And he says, hey, Isaiah, these people, they're not gonna hear you. They're not gonna see you. They're not gonna care. They're going to, look at verse 15, have dull hearts with ears that can barely hear and eyes that cannot see. And so he's saying, can you imagine being a prophet? And you're like, hey, you're gonna go preach this message and no one's gonna care. That's really fun for Isaiah, I imagine. Okay, and so what Jesus is telling them, that same principle has been prophetic. That is this group of people. There are Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and religious leaders who have looked at Jesus and they've called him Satan. They've tried to undermine his deity. They've tried to arrest him. They've tried to kill him. They've tried all sorts of things. He's saying they will not understand this message. They have hard hearts, they have dull hearts, and they won't understand. But you guys, you guys are, verse 15, when you understand with your heart in turn, then they will heal. Then he says, for you guys, verse 16, are blessed. For your eyes see and your ears hear for truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So he says, you guys are blessed that you would hear the word of God, that you would see God incarnate in flesh through Christ. You guys are blessed. And it's also a little bit condemning on the part of the Jewish people because when you read Isaiah, Isaiah says that their hearts are gonna be dull, but he also goes through that God's going to crush Israel, right? He's going to lay it desolate and he's going to restore it through a king. That king is Jesus and he's also gonna bring a savior. So Isaiah 6, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 55 lays it all out and he's like, look, you guys are denying the king that's come. They're completely missing it. So then that begs the question, well then, who's saved? And how do we know? So Jesus begins to explain to them, look, there's gonna be four types of soil. Okay, and I want you to understand this, and this is what's going to happen. There's gonna be people who don't hear and they ignore it and they don't know. Okay, so we're gonna walk through what are the four soils. So we essentially got your hard soil, your rocky soil, your soil among thorns, and your good soil. Make it simple, bad soil, good soil. And this is gonna be important because as we walk through this, it's gonna bring people to mind. 
And it's gonna cause you to have questions about their salvation and if they're saved. And well, if they're not saved, does that mean I'm saved? And what does that mean? And, and all I can do is faithfully present the text to you and tell you this is what it says. And hopefully if you're a Christian, you just find a tremendous blessing in verse 16 that you're blessed that God has given you a heart to love him and trust him and serve him. Yeah, so let's, let's walk through this because there's some, some serious stuff here. So first one he says, when anyone hears, we're in verse 19, we're gonna walk 19 through 23 because it gives you the parable and the answer, okay? So he says this, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away. What has been sown in his heart, that is why, sorry, that is what was sown along the path. And okay, I get it. Some of you are farmers and like, why on earth would you scatter seed, scattering a sowing, without tending to the soil? Well, back then they weren't as smart as you, okay? So they went seed first, soil second. We're smarter now, so we do soil first and then seed. But the, they would have understood this parable. They would have understood, yeah, farmers, they cast seed and sometimes it grows and sometimes it doesn't. And he's saying, so is it when the word of God is taught, different things happen. So he's saying it's possible that someone hears it, but then it comes and it gets snatched. And what was sown in there was already a hard heart. And so I was thinking through, you know, how to illustrate this best. And there's a story of one man that just made a lot of sense to me. And it's a sad story. Uh, it was a, a man in our church. He came to me and he said, I don't believe in the deity of Jesus. I don't, I don't believe Jesus is the son of God. I don't believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I don't believe God exists at all. I was like, oh, wow. So I said, tell me a little bit of your story. And so this is where, this is where it gets hard. Because he grew up in a Christian home with Christian parents and went to a Christian school and a Christian college, became a youth pastor, served in a church, and is denying Christ in his 50s. Yeah. So he starts with this story. And he tells me when he was a young man, um, the pastor caught him looking through an inappropriate magazine in church. And the pastor came and sat him in his office and he just, just came at him with pornography is a sin and you're a sinner and it's evil and it's wrong and just blasted him. He said from that moment on, he was incredibly angry with the pastor, incredibly angry with God, and incredibly angry with the church that they would want to take this life-giving pleasure and take it away from him. But yet, he continues to go to school, works in a church as a youth pastor, and inevitably what happens, he says, I'm done trying to please you. I want to keep my idol, worship my idol, and make it all go away. I don't care about it. See, he had already had a seed sown in his heart, and that, that was sin, it's pornography. And he was done playing the game. He was done going through the motions. And so we walk through Matthew 18 with him. Okay, you've, you've sinned denying the deity of Jesus. Let's talk about this. So I gave him a book, he gave me a book. He gave me a book to read about postmodernism, and I was like, this is terrible. Why, this makes no sense, you know, I'm like, Okay, but I need to focus on him. So we talk about it. And it really wasn't the book. It, was, it went all the way back to the sin. He didn't want to let it go. He, he didn't want to follow Christ. He didn't want to give it up. So I said, okay, well, if you refuse to call Jesus the Son of God, call him Lord. I said, I can't call you a Christian. He said, well, at least I know you read your Bible. 
See, there becomes a problem when we try to make people a Christian so that we can try to comprehend, but, but, but they did this, but they worked at a church, and, but they went on mission trips, but they, they, they said all these things, and they did all these, they have to be a Christian. If they're not a Christian, then there's no way I'm a Christian. And then we make them a Christian to make us feel better about ourselves. He goes, okay, you're reading your Bible because you cannot deny the lordship of Christ and be a Christian. Incompatible. If I would have done that, he would have known I was just trying to make myself feel good or denied the conflict, or I didn't really believe the word of God. So then we had to say, you know what, you're welcome at this church. We want you at this church, but I have to treat you like a tax collector or a Gentile. That's Matthew 18, meaning you're not a Christian. So we had to go to his wife. You have an unbelieving husband, and you need to first Peter, love him, and allow your obedience to Christ be a testimony to his unfaithfulness in an effort to bring him to knowing Christ and saving faith. We went to the small group leaders and said, hey, he is not a Christian. You, you, you need not go to him for spiritual advice, for counseling, for biblical advice. He is not your brother in Christ. But he is welcome here. And he needs to know the gospel. He needs to know Christ crucified. Some of you are going, well, how does that happen? Because there is such a thing as cultural Christianity. There is such a thing as cultural religion. It happens all over the world. People grow up Muslim because they're told to be Muslim. They grow up Hindu because they're told to be Hindu. People grow up Christian because they're told to. They don't want to let down their parents. They don't want to let down their friends. They don't want to give up this group of friends. They don't want to be ostracized from the community. They don't want to be treated differently. They love the accolades. They love the praise. And so they just go through the motions and they perform but the heart was never, ever, ever rooted and connected to Christ. She looked no further than the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They prayed the prayers. They went to the temple. They gave the sacrifices. They fasted. They abstained. But it was all for the saving work of themselves and their own glory and their own power and their own might and their own preservation. And so it happens. It happens, and it's sad, but it's important we realize if you're looking through this text, just because they say it on the outside does not mean it is present on the inside. Jesus gives more examples. Verse 20, he says, as for it was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. He knows the right reaction. So he's sitting there going, man, I'm, I'm a sinner and I've been trying so hard to fit in and I've been trying so far to, hard to find meaning and purpose in my life. And he realized Christ, payment, oh, this is amazing. Yet he has no root in himself. He endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on the account of the world, of the word, immediately he falls away. We see this happen often when we send kids to camp. We'll send them up to camp, and, and it's awesome because there's no cell service, right? There's no connection to the world they have down here, and they're up in an isolated area, and they're hearing God's word, and they're hearing what Christ did, and they're like, oh my gosh, this is what I've been looking for. Someone who loves me, someone who knows me, 
And they have this immediate joy. They're excited, they're pumped. And then they come down the mountain. And what's waiting for them? The tribulations, the persecution. They have parents who don't love them. They have addictions that they left temporarily that they've come back to. They have a boyfriend, a girlfriend who doesn't know Christ, doesn't love Christ. They have fights and insecurities and all of this comes and it pounds and it pounds and it pounds and it says that the word is gone. That's why when people ask me, hey, how many kids got saved at camp? I say, I'll tell you in six months. I'll tell you in six months because we don't know what happens up there. People go on trips and they get excited. They come on Sunday and they get excited. Emotional reaction is not confirmation of salvation. What is this getting at? Confirmation of salvation is when you've gone through the tribulation, you've gone through the persecution, and nothing can choke out the roots that are wrapped in Christ. Nothing chokes that away because it is rooted. He gives another example. He says, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of richness choke the word and it proves unfruitful. I've seen this happen a decent amount of times. I grew up in Arizona. Um, in Arizona, there's a lot of Mormons. And in my Christian church and setting and other churches I knew, it would not be uncommon for a man to lose his job. And it's like the Mormons have like a hotline when someone loses their job, they call each other, they figure it out and boom, they send someone to your house. And they say, you know what? If you would come to our church, you'll never worry about money again. You'll never worry about debt. We'll give you a job. We'll give you the money you need to get whole and you will be perfectly fine. You see, the cares of the world choke out and the deceitfulness, this will make it better. And they leave the Christian church. They completely leave and abandon. And if you're wondering, Mormons are not Christians. It's not the same Jesus. Now, right now, you're like, I want to know more about that. That's a podcast. See? Eh? Don't have time to explain Mormonism in the sermon. It's just an example. But there's other times. There's other times. I was in college, and man lost his job, and he was, he was weeping at the thought of being homeless. Mormon church approached him. He said, I'd rather be homeless and follow Christ. Cares of the world cannot choke the rootedness of being connected to Christ out of him. Okay? This is not uncommon throughout the scriptures to see this principle. Do you remember the story of Job? How God presents him and says, There is no one like him in all the land. He is a righteous man. And what does Satan say? Watch this in this passage. Okay? Job 2 1 through 6. And says, There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man 
who fears God and turns away from evil, he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Now watch Satan's response. Verse four, then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. What is Satan saying to God? When the cares of this world, the persecution, the tribulation, rips it from him, he will curse you. He does not love you. He only loves you because you're being nice to him. Parable of the soils. The second that man's health is questioned and taken away, he will not love you. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. I don't know why you would throw down a challenge with God. But anyways, you think through that. Satan recognizes the parable of the soils. Take his health. Take his money. Take his family. It is a culturally conditioned faith. They will only love you when you produce They will not love you for who you are and what you have done. And God says, oh, do your worst, Satan. He loves me. He's mine. And Job is faithful and Job worships. And then Job has this moment of like, okay, God, this is a lot. What have I done to deserve this? And then God comes in a mighty thunder. Job, where were you when I created the earth? Where were you when I created the stars? Where were you? And he goes, oh, shoot, God, I'm sorry. I've spoken of things I do not understand. And he repents. He says, God, I will never speak of these things again. I will never do that again. See, Job was rooted, rooted in his faith. Nothing could take it away. So this leads us to all kinds of questions in the bad soils. Can you lose your salvation? Because what we have on its face is the appearance of a salvation and then a leaving, and then a leaving. But what the text is saying, it was never there. It gave the appearance. It gave the appearance. So then some of you would say, well, pastor, then how do I know that I can't lose my salvation? How do do we know these things? Okay, again, it would take many, many sermons to cover the full length, breadth, of that, but we have to preach this passage with answering that question because the Christian is to have great comfort. You see, this is what happens when you preach these sermons. Someone's gonna go home, they're gonna stub their toe, they're gonna say a bunch of curse words, yell at their wife and say they hate their kids and be like, oh my gosh, I lost my salvation. I'm the, I'm the parable of soils right there. I'm the thorny soil. This is not saying if you're a Christian that you're not going to sin, you're going to sin. It's how do you handle sin? How do you view sin? How do you look at Christ? How do you handle Christ? Look at these scriptures, okay? We're just gonna walk through a couple and then I gotta move on. John 10, 28 and 29. I give them eternal life. Who gives eternal life? God gives it. It's not ours to take. It's not ours to give. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. If you were given eternal life and then you perish, you were given something and then you ended up perishing, then Jesus is a liar. Keep going. 
No one will snatch them out of my hands, including yourself. To lose your salvation is literally to open up the hand of God and take that person out and put them over here. Seeing no one has that power. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one, no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. If you are his, you are his forever. You cannot open his hand. And for some of you, that's seemingly bad. That needs to be the most encouraging thing you hear. That though your sin condemn you and Satan accuse you, nothing can snatch you from Christ's hand. Not even you are more powerful than he. If you are his, you are his forever. That is thank you. That should encourage you. Okay, next one. I bring this up because I want to look at this at two different angles. There's, there's literally what Jesus says, and there's also, how does this scripture talk about salvation? It's not this thing that you just put down, pick up, put down, pick up. Yeah? It is a legal transaction. Catch this. Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption onto himself as sons through Christ according to the purpose of his will. He says, you have been adopted into his family, paid for by the work of Christ on the cross. Once you are adopted, you can never be unadopted. That is a legal transaction. It is a legal proceeding. You've been purchased and given to the Father. You cannot be taken now from the Father and become unadopted. How else does the scripture speak of salvation? That you've been justified, meaning your sin has been paid for. The balance was unpayable. And Christ pays the balance. And the judge declares you innocent in the sight, in his sight, and his judgments. You can't make that judge overturn and say, no, now you are guilty, even though you were declared innocent. You are declared, you are permanently his and forever. Okay? That should be very, very, very encouraging. But this is what happens. We say, well, pastor, I think I'm a Christian, but there's this guy I know, and it's similar to your story, and he's done all these things and all this. And if he's not a Christian, there's no way I can be a Christian. You do not judge your salvation based on other people. Have you been purchased? Have you been redeemed? Are you his? You are his forever. Here's the reality you have to get out of your mind. There is no formula to save somebody. I was a high school pastor, or at least in high school ministry, for you know 10 years. I've seen every type of situation. Nothing, nothing is consistent. There's homeschool kids who love Jesus as adults. There's homeschool kids who end up going to prison as adults. There's Christian school kids. There's kids who grow up with one parent, two parents, Christian parents. There's kids who grow up in the same house, being taught the same things, being treated the same way, who have different endings. 
Have we seen this? There is no formula. And what we do is we worship the formula. I'll just do this, and then there'll be it, and I'll protect, and I'll do this, and I'll no, 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 no. No, 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 no. You cannot guarantee. You cannot guarantee. There's bad soil and there's good soil. The good soil produces fruit. The bad soil might give the appearance. It might temporarily, but it ultimately doesn't. So then you say, well, pastor, then, then how do I view how do I view someone where I think I've seen evidence and, and I'm just not sure how to categorize it? The Bible gives us essentially two categories. I don't have time to walk through all of this because I gotta, I gotta move on to my next point, but I at least wanna throw you some type of biblical framework on how to think about this. Is you have essentially two things. You either have one, a prodigal son. What's the prodigal son? It's, it's a son goes to the father and he says, I want nothing to do with you. I want my inheritance. I want to go. I want to leave. I want to do my own thing. So he goes and he, he leaves the father. And he spends all the money and all his passions and feeds all his insecurities and all his desires. And he ultimately comes to a place where he says, I've made a terrible mistake. I didn't realize how good it was to be of the father. And so he says to himself, I, I'm going to go and beg the father just to be a servant in my father's kingdom. And so he runs back to the father. And the father doesn't receive him as a servant. This father sees him in the distance and tells everybody, throw a party. My son has returned. And what's the point of the story? The son was never not a son. The son was always a son. He was always a son. Now, what I can't do is tell you, at what point did that, did he accept Christ, you know, before he left, while he left, when he came back? Was it when the father said he was a son? He was always a son. Plain and simple. So we know that within Christianity, there's sometimes this prodigalness to where they will go out and they will sin and they sin and they sin. But in the prodigal story, the son always comes back to the father because he was always a son. And then there's 1 John. They left us and did not come back to us because they were never one of us. Those that are prodigals, they will come back to the father. Those that are not, never were. Now you can try to press that more and more and more and more but I can't press it more. This is what the Bible teaches. It's where we live, within the framework of what the Bible says. But he doesn't end it there, does he? He says, there's a good soil. There's a good soil. Let's get to the good soil. Verse 23. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word, understands it, he indeed bears fruit, yields it in one case, hundredfold, and another 60, and another 30. Okay, so this, this is important to see. One, saying the Christian doesn't just understand the information, it actually understands it in their heart, and then they, they do something with it, and it produces fruit. And this is encouraging. Some will produce 100 some 60, some 30. 
Notice Jesus doesn't create a hierarchy in here, does he? He just says fruit will be produced. Someone will be 100, someone will be 30, someone will be 60. And so, so then who are the people who understand it and bear fruit? They're the ones who know they need a Savior. They're the ones who know their sin needs to be paid for and they can't do it themselves. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had no interest in a Savior. That's why they, Jesus says, I came to heal the sick because they know they need a physician. See, the Pharisee and the Sadducee, I, I will save myself. I will make it right. I will do these things. I will balance the scales. I have no need for someone to save me. I can do it on my own. The one who understands knows there's no way I can pay for my sin. I need a payment. I need a savior. Christ is that savior. Christ is that payment. And then you live and dwell in that relationship. That's where John 15 now comes in. So that you're connected to the vine. Jesus is the vine. When you're connected to the vine, you bear fruit. Gentleness, self-control, patience, love, kindness. You know, I know I missed some from Galatians 5, but you get the idea. You get the idea. You're producing what you're connected to, and you're connected to Christ. The people who gave some evidences, temporarily evidences, they weren't connected to Christ. They weren't connected to the Savior. They weren't trusting in the work of the Savior. Another way to, to say abide is to continue or have continual trust. You're fully dependent on the vine. Sadducees, Pharisees, religious leaders, completely dependent on themselves. Completely dependent on their work. Not connected, but on the outside. Man, they prayed and they fasted and they abstained from foods and they went to temple and they had clean language. All the things on the outside, absolutely nothing on the inside. No connectedness. No rootedness in Christ. And so then that begs the question, well, how do we, how do we know? What do we do? Look at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven or 26 and 27. I want you to see this. It says, For whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So why did, well, how does he say you remedy that? Well, in verse 26, he says that you are to test yourself to make sure that you are in the faith. Make sure that essentially you are a Christian. What is he getting at? That you actually care about sin, that you sinned against God, and Christ paid for that sin, and you care about it. Because when you connect those dots, then you'll take communion saying, thank you, Jesus, for paying for my sin because I never could. You care deeply about your sin, and you care deeply about the one whom you sinned against. You sinned against Christ. You can't just throw it back and be like, oh yeah, this is cool. What's next? I'm good. Oh yeah, God, forgive me of everything. I guess I'm kind of bad. You realize there's apart from Christ, John 15, apart from Christ, you can do nothing. Your sins have no, no opportunity to be taken care of without Christ. There's not a shot in the world without Christ. Christ. 
So you test the motivations of your heart. Well, well, why do I pray? Why do I go to church? Why do I read my Bible? Because I'm in a relationship with Jesus, the one who saved me. I have a heavenly father who loves me, who purchased me, who's adopted me, sealed me, and I want to be like him. I want to be with him. I'm gonna be with him forever. So it's not that you're gonna be sinless. It's that you care deeply about the relationship. That's how you know. Do you care when you sin? Do you care what Christ says? Or do you just look at it like a transaction? I said a prayer a long time ago. I'm good. No, I didn't just say a prayer. I made a commitment, a forever commitment that I'm not perfect at, that I care about keeping more than anything in the world. More than anything in the world, I care about that commitment. That's the good soil. So then what are we to do? Okay. We're 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 7. What are we to do? I want you to catch this. This is huge. It's very important. This is Paul talking to the people at Corinth. And he's trying to make it very obvious to them. If you are saved, it is the work of Christ. It is not the work of any man. Anything they have done is purely the work of Jesus. He says, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. See, if you're Catholic, if you are going to boast about salvation, if you're going to If you're going to praise the salvation process, you would praise three things. There's the work of you, the work of Christ, and the work of the priest. So who boasts in that growth? growth? The priest, Jesus, and you. Paul says, all you do, water and plant. God does the growth. That's a scary thing because you can't guarantee growth. You can't guarantee growth in your spouse. You can't guarantee growth in your kids. You can't guarantee growth in your mom, in your dad, in your loved ones. That is between them and the Lord. It's between them and the Lord. Now, in one facet, that should give you all kinds of relief. Can you imagine thinking to yourself, if I just would have said the right thing, then they'd be saved? If I just would have done the right thing, if I just would have stayed longer, if I just would have done one more thing, then I could have saved them. I could have done this. Paul says, no, no, we're in this business of planting and watering. The rest is between them and God. And this is what Jesus is getting at. For some, it will grow. For others, it never will. So we have to trust God in the process. We need to plant and water, plant and water, plant and water. And you have to know that you're not always going to see growth. Now, the other part of this is I think sometimes we get so locked into our American culture that we're like, it's not growing, it's not growing, it's not growing. How long does it take fruit to grow? Time, right? Time. I've been at this church, you know, over 15 years. I've gotten to know people. And one thing I've learned is there's some people in here that people 
prayed for them to become a Christian for 30 and 40 years. Water, plant, water, plant, water, plant. 40 years of watering and planting and faithfulness, and then God caused the growth. And it's happened in all ways and forms. It's happened over time. Some people slowly battling with addiction, God slowly taking it and hammering it and hammering it and hammering it, and then finally they let go and they say, take it. Then I've seen other times where just like a pull moment, God comes and boom, their hearts changed. They're a completely different person in an instance. There's no formula to this. There's what we're commanded to do. Water, plant, water, plant. Now, there's, there's some good news, bad news to this, you know. In one sense, it's bad. I wish Jesus would come back, don't we? Okay, but then that would mean, oh man, and everything ends. The good news is, because he hasn't, we still have an opportunity to water and plant, water and plant, water and plant, water and plant. We still have that opportunity. And that's why it's so important we give every opportunity to water and plant, water and plant, water and plants, and, and just trust God for the process. Trust God for the growth, knowing that we've fulfilled what we're supposed to do. Now, we're to water and plant, but we're also, now catch this, this is huge. He indeed bears fruit. He indeed bears fruit. As a Christian, we need to be bearing fruit. Patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control, faith, trusting the Lord, hope. We need to be walking with Christ, trusting that he loves us, that our sin is paid for, trusting his commands, trusting that he is better and he is greater. And through that daily consistency, we're going to produce fruit. Because at the end of the day, this is all you have. I'm going to be very clear. This is all you have. You're going to look someone in the eye, and you're going to tell them there's nothing better, there's nothing greater in this whole earth than following Jesus. And your fruit will either be the affirmation of that truth or the absolute denial of that truth. Because they will look at your life and say, you know what, yeah, you've been persecuted, you've been through tribulation, you've seen the cares of the world, you've handled the deceitfulness of riches, riches, and nothing took away your love for Christ. That fruit is an affirmation that you are telling them the truth, that truly for you there's nothing greater than following Jesus, and there's nothing in this world that could take it away from you. And that is absolutely as far as you can take them. But don't you want to take them that far? Don't you want them to know that there's nothing in this world that could take you away from Christ, from following him, from loving him, from being devoted to him? That they can look at your life and say cancer couldn't take it, the heart attack couldn't take it, losing your job couldn't take it, the unfaithful spouse couldn't take it, the wayward kids couldn't take it, the persecution of the world couldn't take it. Nothing, nothing, nothing is better than following Jesus. And it is in that fruit that you water and you plant and you give the greatest testimony possible. See, this is the life of Paul, isn't it? He's shipwrecked, he's persecuted, he's beaten, he's stoned, he's thrown in jail. And he's like, take it all to live as Christ and to die as gain. And the people are watching going, I need to know more about what that guy believes. 
There's something there. Nothing shakes this man's faith. Nothing shakes this man's commitment and love and obedience to Jesus. I need to know more. I need to know more. That's what we are called to do as the Christian. In verse 17, verse 16, may we consider that a blessing, that we know Christ, that we understand his word, and that we know what to do. Some questions for us to ask. Why is it important that we keep sharing God's word? Because we're commanded to. Plant and water, plant and water, plant and water. You never know what he's going to do with it. Two, who are people that you know that have had bad soil? Don't give up on them. Don't give up on them. Plant, water, plant, water, plant, water. Three, how have trials and hard times shaped your faith? They remind you you're saved. It's the fruit of choosing Christ when you have no reason to choose Christ. They remind you and affirm in you that you're saved. Four, how can you prepare yourself and others for future obstacles to God's word so that you're not shocked when things fall apart? You're not shocked when people hate you. You're not shocked when things don't go your way because like Job, God says you're gonna go through this and it's gonna show them that you love me more than the circumstances. You love me more than an easy and comfortable life. Five, What's the best way to make sure you're producing fruit? Actively, daily trusting the Lord through his word, through prayer, talking to other Christians. Man, I love Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. I got it wrong. God, help me. Christian brother, help me. We are rooted in Christ, and that is our blessing. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we love you. We praise you, and we thank you. And we pray during a time of communion, you would just speak to us, teach us. Teach us all that you are and all that you have. And we would be forever, forever, forever grateful for the work of Christ. The work that we could not do, that you did on our behalf. God, we don't fully understand how all of this works out. But we do know two things. One, you were good. And two, you were just. That tells us three, we can trust you. So I pray in a time of communion, we would just come to a place of celebration for the work of Christ on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Here at LBC, uh, we believe communion is a symbolic act, that the bread symbolizes and reminds us of Christ's body broken on our behalf and that the juice reminds us his blood poured out again on our behalf, done for us. It's not an act of salvation in communion, it's a reminder Communion is also for the Christian. It's for the Christian to do as remembrance of the work of Christ. Communion is also that opportunity in that 1 Corinthians 11 passage to test, do you care that you've sinned against Christ? Do you care that you've broken commitments you've made in that relationship, that you've loved and adored things more than you love and adore Christ? It's that testing to say, no, I do love him and I do want to follow him. And God, please forgive me of that sin. That's your reminder. Hey, you're in the faith. You love Jesus. You care about your sin. You care about Christ. You care about being his child. And then as you walk through that process, you celebrate. Praise God I'm forgiven. Praise Jesus for paying for my sin. And that's when we move into a time of worship and celebration through response. 
praising Jesus that we're his, praising Jesus the world can't take us, praising Jesus that he can't lose us, praising Jesus he paid for our sin, praising Jesus that we're connected to the vine and can never be taken away. And so that's what we do in our process of communion. It's a testing and affirming of our faith, a celebration of the work of Christ, and a celebration that we're forever his. So I'm gonna pray and then you can take communion in your own time, in your own pace. And John will come up and just lead us in a great celebration of the work of Christ. Let's pray. God, we pray you would speak to us, move us, teach us. You would show us our sin. It would break our heart. We would mourn our sin. And then we would move into thankfulness for the work of Christ, paying for that sin, once for all payment, forever paid. And we would celebrate Christ for his work his perfect work on the cross, that we are purchased and redeemed and forever, ever, ever his. May we celebrate that greatly in prayer and even more greatly through song, celebrating his work, his perfect work, his finished work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.